As we look at chapter 18 this morning, I think it's important to just note a couple of things. Number one, we're going to deal with sin, and that's always something that comes to us that is very clear that um, we are sinful. And so you're going to see someone falling into sin. Uh, you also will see us discuss church discipline and then the issue of forgiveness. And so all of those things will kind of be there in this study this morning. One of the things that's interesting, if you'd been in this study with us from the start, uh, you would understand that just a few weeks ago we were in chapter 16. And Jesus said, on this I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he has been picking up the theme of the church and, and the beginnings of the church and what that's going to look like. In chapter 18, we are going to see really how the church is to function uh, together because they are sinners. And so we're going to look at a lot of different things this morning. Hopefully that will help you. Now, I just want you to think about the church just for a moment. We, we studied Ephesians some time ago, and I'll read a few things to you that we learned there. Positionally, due to our union with Christ, due to the fact that we have trusted in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. We have been miraculously raised from the dead by the power of God. Just as Jesus was crucified, died, and rose again, so we have been raised from the dead. We are fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom. We really are a holy priesthood together. We have been built and raised up into a spiritual body. There is a union between God and, and, or Christ and His church that is inseparable, and you and I experience that. And so it's just important to note that as we think about it. We are, the Scripture says, the dwelling place of God. God lives or, or resides among His people. His, His Spirit is at work in us. And so there's this strong union between us and one another, or me and you. There is a union. If you are in Christ, there is an inseparable union. There is an eternal union. There is a relationship that is so deep that it's just beyond our imagination how um, um, tightly we are bound together in Christ. Now, one of the things that we talk about, and we have been talking about as a church, is, is that, that as a result of that, what we are positionally in Christ practically when we start living that out, when we begin to dwell with one another and seek uh, to grow in our relationships with one another, we're still sinners. So although we, the Scripture calls us saints, while we live in this present world, we still struggle with sin. And so I think it's just important to, to highlight that. Now, in light of that, it, it, what, what Ephesians tells us is that we are to bear with one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to humble ourselves uh, with one another. We are to seek... Uh, reconciliation with one another. All those things are kind of explained in Ephesians. Listen to what else Ephesians 4 says. This church is to grow in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, when you think about that, in light of what we've been studying in chapter 18, it, it blows your mind. I mean, it really does. For me, as I studied 18, I always knew it was a church discipline passage. But I never really thought about what really happened in chapter 18. So think with me real quick. There are six paragraphs in chapter 18. In verses 1 through 4, as you kind of try to understand that, he says, he repeats that theme I just talked about in Ephesians 4. You are to humble yourselves before one another. Like a child, that's how we are to come to one another. 
The second portion there, as you move to the next paragraph, what does it tell us? We are to try to strive for, for each one of us to live a holy life. And so we're constantly thinking about how I can encourage you and you can encourage me to live a holy life. That's, that's what he says. There's a responsibility there. Last week I said, look, you can be inactive in that. You can think, you know what, I didn't, I didn't cause that person to sin because I didn't do anything to make them sin, but you didn't do anything to stop them from sinning. And that's another thing. That's the weight of that. He's saying, you're not stopping them from sin. You're not setting a model before them. You're not spending time so that they'll know what it means to walk in the ways of God. And that's kind of how 18 begins. As it moves forward in there, you see God's care. And y'all just check that out. You can see there where God's love for His people, He sends the angels to minister to them. He moves even further. And as you kind of unpack that, you see that God just is, is watching over His people. God will pursue one out there who's, who's rebelled against Him. And you see God's heart in that way. So all those things coming up to the chapter, that, the, this portion of the chapter, are, are there before us. So as we look at the fourth paragraph in verse 15, you look with me here and I'll read verse 15. If your brother, if your brother sins, now I want to stop there. Because it, this could, you could either interpret this if your brother sins against you or if your brother sins. There's a little bit of a struggle there with, with people that are, that are trying to understand that and unpack that. So notice what it says. If your brother sins, now we're going to look at both of those things. It could be either if your brother sins or if your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, I want you to catch that. There's two ways to look at this. We can either look at it and say, look, this is just dealing with when a brother or sister sins against you and how you deal with that as a result. Number two, though, it could just be if you saw your brother sinning, if you, you saw them. Now, I'm going to take the approach more of if you just, in general, see someone fall into sin. Because I think that both deals with that issue, but it also encompasses if your brother sins against you. So we're just going to kind of look at it in that way. Now, I want you to think about this um, just for a moment. If you really cared about someone, like your child, if they today you were sitting outside and it stops raining and they say, hey, I want to go out and play. And they get out there and they run out in the street and they're dancing around in the street, having so much fun, and you're like, you know, I love my child so much, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Because then they would be sad, and it would make them really sad. And I don't want to hurt their feelings, and so I'm going to let them play in the street. And, and, and then all of a sudden you see a truck coming, and you think it's getting closer and closer, and my child's just dancing around, playing in the street, having so much fun. But I want to just silently watch them play away have all the fun in the world while a truck comes and it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Would any parent do that? Would anybody with in any way in their right mind do that? In Matthew chapter 18, sometimes when we approach this, we think, well, this isn't loving. It isn't loving to do that. It's not loving to talk to someone about their sin. That's not loving. That is the most loving thing. A parent that says, I'm going to let my child play in the street, loves themselves more. 
A parent that never holds their child accountable loves themselves more. They love, they love preserving themselves. They want to, their children to love them. They don't really love the child. They love themselves. And I think that's just important to note. And I think the same way a church member who looks at another church member falling in the sin and looks at them and says, well, they seem like they're having fun. They're choosing their way. Just let them go. It's the most horrific sin you could do against someone else. It's like an ER doctor that would have someone coming in and they're bleeding to death. They have the ability to go along, come alongside and help bring healing. And just walking on past as the person, they watch their eyes, just in, in their eyes, their, their life just pass out of them. All of those things I think we just need to see and understand. So as we see that, as we move ahead, you notice what the text says. If your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It is that idea that you, you, it's, it, there's an element here where it's, it's silent. It's not, oh, I saw my brother sinning, so I'm going to call somebody else in the church and tell him. Or even if someone sinned against you, I'll call one of my family members and I'll just tell him this person sinned against me. And I'll talk about it. That's, that's gossip. But, but this idea is to silently go with a broken heart. Anna always, uh, and when I mention her, I don't, I don't mean it like, but she helps me a lot. And one of the ways she does, sometimes I joke about something we've done, but, but what she does for me a lot is like if I get really stirred up about something that I see, and I want to just go, I mean, I want to go give it to them. You know what I mean? I just want to go straighten somebody out. She, she always says, have you, have you prayed about it? And I'm like, man, what do you mean have I prayed about it? You know, don't, don't talk about that right now. I want to go lay it down and give it to them. But, but she's always trying to say, look, what's your heart here? Am I broken hearted over that? Or am I just mad because they made me mad? This is not what this is about. When, in 1815, it's not somebody like, they hurt my feelings. I'm just going to go in there and straighten them out. I'm so mad at them. I'm going to yell at them. You know, it's not that. Or, you know what I mean? It's, that's crazy stuff. It, what it's talking about here is when someone cares so much about their brother and sister in sin that they are going to go to them and try to bring restoration. They are seeking the best for them and the best for the body. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I think it's important to note this. In the context of this, when you read this verse, you think back to a passage in Deuteronomy. And when you think back to that passage in the Old Testament, it kind of has this idea of like if someone, they, you saw someone commit murder, then they would, th there were three witnesses there. And one of the witnesses says, I know they saw it and let's go up there and deal with this. This is not really that issue. I think this issue here is that you would come, you would think, Lord, who would be the best to go with me to this person? They don't really see their sin right now. They don't really see it as sin. Who could come help me? It might be someone really wise in the Scriptures that could come alongside and say, do you see, this is the right way and this is the wrong way to live. Someone that's very wise in that way. It might be someone that's very close to them. Someone that they respect in the church. Now, this hits something we talked about um, in, in the last few weeks too. If you don't know people, if you don't know anybody in the church, if you're not investing your life in anyone in the church, who's going to speak to them? You're going to go up to a stranger? No, it, the idea is as, as your heart longs to see people grow in Christ, you, you're seeking someone that can, can come into this situation. Have you ever met someone that is really good in difficult situations? I mean, they are just stellar 
in taking the situation that might be hostile and walk in. When I was uh, working at First Baptist Wake Village, I had this older man that there were a few issues we had to deal with. And when he went with me, he walked real softly. He talked really quiet. But he had been in that church for like 50 years. And when he spoke, everybody listened. You know I mean? It's just one of those things. He had that ability. And so he might be something. That was someone that I would go to and say, look, let's go to this brother as we're seeking to restore them. So you take two or three witnesses that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, it's, it's clarifying what's happened and what's gone on and all those things being brought to the table. Verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this seems, I mean, again, this is a this this brings it more public as you're moving through this process, always longing to restore, brokenheartedly longing for someone to be restored. There comes a point where you've tried everything and now you've got to go to the church. But here's the thing sometimes within the body, there's someone that you wouldn't know that might be able to speak into that person's life. Sometimes the church would be used with the, with the varying gifts and, and even with the prayers of the churches. They gather together and pray, oh God, bring this person back into fellowship. Sometimes they're just in numbers as they pray and seek the Lord and as they come alongside that person, it, it, it helps them through this process. There are times where just someone again, like out of the body, will just stand up and bring wisdom in the moment. Now, so you kind of keep thinking through this, this process, individual, two or three, the church, every step along the way, prayerfully asking God to bring this person back under the Word of God. Now, there's a positive side to, um, when you think about disciplining a child, sometimes you're just teaching them to walk in the right way. You're just saying like, this is the steps you need to take. Other times, there, there's, there are those negative times where you have to say, look, that's the wrong way to go. That's, that's what this is. This is really discipleship. And I think sometimes people don't get this. This is discipleship 101 right here. There are times you're encouraging in the right way. There's times where you're coming to someone and saying you're going the wrong way. All of those are essential in seeing what's taking place. But listen, there comes a point where someone is in complete, absolute rebellion that you have to say to them. Notice what the Scripture says. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. Sometimes, by the way, I've seen this take months and months and months and months. It's not something that just happens almost immediately. There's times where it takes a long time of moving through with them. But notice what it says. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it's important to say, listen... Throughout Matthew, he's been showing how Gentiles have believed in the faith and trusted the Lord. But as he speaks to Jesus, speaking to this audience, primarily Jewish, when you said Gentile and tax collector, those were the outsiders in that community. The, the tax collector was someone who sold out the Jews and lined his pocket with a bunch of money by, by in a sense, like uh, buddying up with the enemy. And so you kind of catch that going on. So what he's saying is you're casting them out of the church. Now that seems like something some of us would say, good night, could you really do that? Well, here's the thing. Over the long haul, for there, you're hoping for them to be restored, but if they don't really see that we are serious about sin, they may never honestly understand it. Now how does it happen in a lot of places? A lot of times people just go to another church. 
They just go to another place. That church says, well, we welcome everyone in. Used to, back in the day, you would have to sign a letter and a church would send a letter to another church and they would say, this person is in good standing or this person is not in good standing. This person is outside of the will of God. They're in rebellion. And they're coming to your church as rebellious people. That's how it used to be dealt with. And honestly, we've moved away from that. The church has, has moved away from those things. But notice what verse 18 says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is, this is part of what we saw in Matthew 16. But what does the church have the responsibility to do? When, when they pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there is a longing for the will of God to be done. Listen, the church is the only group of people that understands the will of God. They understand the will of God because they have the Word of God. They are the pillars and the support of the truth. They uphold that. They understand this is right. This is wrong. This is what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ. This doesn't. God is clearly, He has spoken. God is not silent. He has told us, this is my will. It's not a question of, well, what's God's will? We do have to ask that question. But the reality is, when God has spoken about something, it is His will. And when the church takes the Word of God, believing it, upholding it, standing for it, they can speak about issues and they can bind and loose. When the church takes the Word of God, they are they are upholding heaven's law and bringing it down to earth. It is a heavenly community. The church is a spiritual body and God has given them the Word so that they might dispense it out and others might receive it and understand. The church has a very high responsibility. They are God's people with God's Word and they speak forth boldly the truth to people in general. We come together. I don't speak on my own authority. I don't stand up here and speak on my own authority. I try to unpack the truth of God. And that is the standard. That is what the church upholds. Now, what is the binding and loosing? I think the clearest way to think about this and just when the church tells that person your life is completely opposite of the way that Christ has called us to live, and they send them out, that they are exercising the God-given authority to say this is completely contrary. They are not necessarily saying this person is not a believer. They are saying their behavior is unbelieving. Now, what I mean by that is this. If those people continue in that rebellion and sin, the church can say. That's what they're saying. They're saying everything in your life says you're not a believer. Everything in your life says you have abandoned the faith. Everything in your life says you are not a part of the people of God. And unless you repent, you probably are not. You are not. Ultimately, in the end, God will bring His people back to Himself. So I just think it's important to clarify that. Verse 19, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by My Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am among them. Now, I think it's just important that you see that when you grasp that. He's saying, again, showing the, the, the relationship of Christ to His church. When the church upholds God's ways, when the church prayerfully considers the will of God and acts upon it, Christ is there. Christ is there. He has given them the authority to uphold that 
on this earth. We are God's agents on this earth of His ways and His rule. So, I want you to see a couple of things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to turn there with me just for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you leave Matthew, just keep going towards the end. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, right? I'm going to say that after a while, I think, do I even know the order? No, I'm just kidding. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Travis, did I miss one? You're wearing me out. All right, I'm good. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Now, I want you to see this because I think it's important for us to just grasp something here. He says to them, evidently, they're falling back into sin, the people in Corinth. And he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, listen to me. He is speaking to the church. And he's just trying to unpack for them this reality. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you have been washed. Do you see what he's saying? You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now listen to me. Y'all check this out. When the Spirit of God moves, the Spirit of God awakens a dead soul, one who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Christ takes them by the Spirit and brings them to life. And as a result of that, the Spirit now works within them and God is working and moving and transforming them step by step, day by day. Now listen, sometimes it's slower, sometimes it's faster, but He is working. And what Paul's saying to them, don't be deceived. Someone who has really experienced the grace of God, someone who has really been transformed by the Spirit of God, they will not continue in a lifestyle of rebellion against God. They are not a part of the kingdom. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's making a declaration. He is binding and loosing. I think the idea there, he is clarifying for them so that they might understand, so that they not, might not embrace error about the way that they should live. I want you to turn a couple more passages with me. Go to Jude. So it's the next to the last book in the New Testament. So Jude, it's right before Revelation. You get to Revelation, back up. It's just one page probably in your Bible. Unless you have like a, some kind of study Bible that has a ton of notes. It would just be one page there. But I want you to note this because I think it's just important to see. Verse 20. Jude verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your, in, in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. When I was a kid, I was riding with my, um, I think I was with my grandfather, but maybe my dad was in the back uh, in another vehicle. I think we had two vehicles at the time. But anyway, we were driving along, coming back from a hunting trip. And, and as we are going along the street, somebody noticed that there was smoke coming out of this house. And, and my, um, my grandfather pulled over, my dad did, and they, they ran up to the house and began to beat on the windows and the doors and, 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 and see if someone was in there. And finally this lady kind of come, come out and my grandfather helped her and 
pulled her away from the, this, this fire that was taking place. I think my dad went and made a phone call and told him what was going on. And all this stuff w- was happening. And in the midst of that, this lady had a dog and you could hear the dog crying and she was trying to run back in and we were trying to hold her back from the fire. And all of these things were taking place. And I think what you see in Jude is he's saying, look, stand firm. Walk in truth. Keep praying. Keep studying. Keep awaiting Jesus coming. And in the midst of that, you've got to come alongside because sometimes people are doubting. Sometimes people are caught in sin. Be very careful, but as you go, go in and restrain them. Pull them out. Try to bring them out so that they might walk in the ways of God. I'm going to read a couple other places. Why don't you turn back to Matthew 18 and then we'll kind of move from this section. But just listen to this in Galatians 6. Just turn back to Matthew 18, but I want to read you this. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. He goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That Part of the Christian life is not only trying to help people stay away from sin, but when they're caught into sin, to come alongside them and try to restore them back to health. There's amazing amounts of Scriptures dealing with this issue. And I think we have to see it and see it clearly. I want to tell you about one other text and you, don't, you can just write it down. 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul write to the church. There's a man who has a sexual relationship with his stepmother in the church. And the Corinthians are almost like proud that they're loving him or something. And Paul says, you've got to get him out of your midst. And he called upon them to cast him out of the church so that he he would be saved in the end. Listen to me. The most gracious thing is that if you'll let somebody go into their sin, if God's at work in them, they'll keep going down that road and ultimately He is going to bring them back as they continue to struggle with their sin. It's almost like the um, the, the guy that uh, he got all his inheritance and he received everything, and he went and spent it on all kinds of foolishness. And at the end, he thought, if I could just go back to my father. And the prodigal son turned back and went back to his father. I think many of us see ourselves in this way. Now, I'm going to write a couple more things for you. Just kind of, You can write these down if you want to. Three areas that I think the Scripture gives us cause for complete excommunication and sending someone out. Number one, false teaching. False teaching is one of the things that really plagues the church. So number one would be false teaching. There are times where where they are called upon to reject them and send them out, those who are teaching falsely. Second, immoral living, like 1 Corinthians 5, where you get to the point where it's this outward rebellion and they're turning away from the ways of God and you've got to call them to account and if they don't repent, they must be cast out. And the third would be a divisive tongue. That sounds kind of odd. It's kind of tied to false teaching, but someone who continues to stir up a body, continues to cause division. Paul said once, reject that person after two or three um, times of telling them to stop. And so I think all those kind of help you put together that. Now, one other thing here, and I feel like I'm going through a lot of stuff fast, so y'all hang with me. I hope you can. Another thing is this. Why... Would a body need to call someone to account in this way? One is this. God's name is to be honored. When you name the name of Christ, 
when you say I'm a Christian, how often do I hear people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but... When you name the name of Christ to bring shame upon His name, to make His name be blasphemed among the unbelieving world is a heinous thing. Titus chapter 2 speaks of that where, where the older women are teaching the younger women so that they won't blaspheme the Word of God. So that they won't discount the Word of God by their lifestyle. When God's name is at stake, we are up to uphold His name. The next one is this. If you were growing up in a church and people lived however they wanted to, and they acted however they wanted to, and they sinned whenever they wanted to, and no one ever said anything to them, no one ever called them out, you would think real Christianity is doing whatever you want. Real Christianity is saying, I believe in Jesus, but He does not rule my life. He is not Lord over me. There is no salvation for someone who says, I trusted Jesus to save me, but I'm going to live my life however I want. That, that is not true Christianity. And so the church has to say, listen, you can't let that one rotten apple destroy the whole bunch. You've got to cast that out so that the church can be healthy and be pure and so that children will look at them and say, this is what it means to live a godly life. Thirdly, the individual soul is at stake. Their soul is at stake. If you pat them on their back in their sin and saying, good boy, keep on sinning, buddy. If you're doing that over and over and over again, they're going to think that Christianity does not call you to a changed life. It's not a life of repentance and faith. It's not a life of walking in the ways of God. You can choose either way. You can go the way of the world and the way of God. It doesn't really matter if you do that. Their blood in a sense, is on your hands. The church that was responsible and loving. Now, in light of that, let's move the fifth paragraph in this section. Then Peter came up and said to him, now here's the idea. If someone does come back, if someone does come and say, you know, I have sinned, and they come, and they come up and they say, um, I've even sinned against you. I've sinned against the body. I've sinned against the church by the way I'm living. And they come to them what are they to do? And Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It's such a powerful thing because Peter is trying, I think he's trying to get like, you know, amen, you know, Peter. Way to go, bro. Seven times. You're really doing it. You're going after it. In that time period, a lot of times people would say around three, you could do that. And the leaders would say, after three, you don't have to do it and you want to forgive anymore. Let me ask you something. With your husband or wife, what if you said, I'm going to quit forgiving after three times? Dude, this, this morning, you'd already stop forgiving, right? In relationships, it's, it's, it's like that. You, the closer you get to someone, the more you see their sin. And the more that they're going to sin against you. That's just the reality. If you were to keep count of all the sins that someone did, the seven wouldn't take long. If you spent a week with me, you would have seven. And so Peter's kind of thinking he's going to do something really good, and Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Some translators think it's seventy-seven. But either way, it's like this uncountable number. As a child, I used to try to count to a hundred. you ever do that? And then my mind wanders at about thirty, right? 
And so you couldn't really keep up with that. And Jesus is just throwing that out there. He's saying, no, it's just it's an immeasurable number. You keep forgiving. You extend forgiveness over and over and over again. Have you ever had somebody that's really hard to forgive? You ever have a brother or sister that's hard to forgive? Whew, right? Suckers are tough to deal with. But, but even in the church, you ever had someone you think, they, they're impossible. I can't deal with their mouth anymore. I'm sick of them running their mouths. I'm sick of them tearing down the church. I'm sick of them speaking things that I didn't say. You ever felt that way? I'm sick of that. What keeps me understanding that I should forgive them? Is it just brute force? I'm just going to keep forgiving. What's He tying you to here? Look at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now I'm not going to read all that for you because we've already read through that a couple of times today. But I just want you to see, there's this king, he's going along. He decides that a lot of people owe him money. Some of you business owners would know what this is like. They haven't paid up. It's time to call in. At the end of the year, we're going to get this straightened out, right? And so he begins to look at his accounts and he says, well, this guy and this guy. Then he comes to this one who owed him 10,000 talents. Do you know what that is? how much that is? I heard Travis this morning in discussion. I did the same thing, Travis. I was like looking up on my, you know, my phone. I was counting up. How much is this? Well, what it says is he owes 10,000 talents. Now, I want you to think about it in this way. I'll give you some figures. One talent... I mean, it depends. Sometimes they say it differently, but some people say one talent equals 6,000 denarii. You know, you know how much that is? That's 6,000 days wages. 6,000 days wages. Now check this out. You ready? That would mean that would be 60 million days wages. If you said, hmm, what's an average day wage? Let's say you said $125 is an average day wage. Wage. That is $7.5 billion. If the calculations are right, which they may not be. Travis may have to straighten me out later. But anyway, that would be 60 million days wages. 60 million. You know how long it would take on a 250-day-a-year work week? 240,000 years to make enough money to pay this dude off. That's crazy. How could he owe that much? Of course, I mean, Jesus is telling this story, but, but who's the king here? As we're going to keep seeing, you'll see this unfold more and more and more. But let's just kind of move forward through that. Now, when this takes place, the king calls this man up and says, go sell him and his whole family until they repay, which he would never pay in lifetime after lifetime and lifetime. And the, king, the guy falls down and says, please have mercy. Please don't do this. Don't. Don't, don't do this to me. Don't, don't destroy my whole life. Just please, just let me try to repay it. And the king forgives him his debt and sends him on his way. As he's walking out along the way, he quickly forgets what just happened. He sees this person that he remembers owes him a hundred days wages. And he goes up and he begins to choke him. Now in Roman times, actually the choking, the idea here is that they would be bleeding as you're choking him because he's choked him so badly. 
He begins to choke this man and he finally just goes and takes him and throws him in jail. Some of his friends hear about this, go to the king, and this guy gets completely... Uh, uh, the king changes his mind, of course, and speaks to him. And, and notice what he says, verse 34. And in anger his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to the, every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, I just want you to kind of catch this. What is the grounds for your forgiveness? What's the grounds for your forgiveness? It is the forgiveness of God. How does the forgiveness of God take place? Does God just, just forgive and just forget? Do you know how that works? God sent His Son to this earth. He, he took Him and sent Him on this earth and Jesus lived a life, a perfect life, and then He ultimately goes to the cross. God poured out the fury of His wrath upon Him so that you could have forgiveness. So that you could be saved. So that you could be um, forgiven of the debt that you owed. So that God could be satisfied with that by pouring it out upon His Son. What is the basis for us as we try to think through this? I think we have to go back over and over and over again every time you want to not forgive. Every time someone sins against you, you run back to the cross of Christ. You see God pouring out His wrath upon His Son. You understand that your sin is so great that 240,000 lifetimes wouldn't be enough to deal with your sin. It could never be. It's an infinite number of sins. You will sin more today than seven times, and maybe this week more than 400 in thought and in deed. And every time you look at someone and do not want to forgive, you sit there. You dwell upon the holiness of God, your sinfulness, and the mercy that was extended to you through the blood of Christ. And everything will change. Matthew 18 is this. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Actively serve the body by trying to help people not sin. Model for them a life of not sinning. If someone falls into sin, love them enough to patiently go to them and try to bring them back. Keep pursuing in that kind of love like God does to the point where you'll release that person so that they might repent. And when they do, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And base all that upon what God has done in Christ. That's what the church is for. And that's what we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I just pray today that we as a church would embody what it means to be the church. That we would love one another. That we would fight against sin with one another that we would pursue one another in a loving manner that puts our comfort in the back seat and our love for others in the front. And Lord, I pray we forgive and forgive and forgive. 
because you have forgiven us so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.